0: All right, tonight, I know there's a lot of other things we could do. We could obviously work on Jude. Obviously, we could spend every extra, extra minute we have on Romans chapter 9, since that's going to take about 9,000 years. But we're not going to do any of those tonight because I received an email and someone asked me to do a Bible study exercise on Matthew chapter 22. Now, the fact they asked... For a Bible study exercise. They may have just used that phrase. Since we do so many Bible study exercises. Or they may have wanted it to be done. As a Bible study exercise. Just to see how we would take it apart. And put it back together. So we're going to be using. The Bible study exercise method. Meaning that I'm going to just. We're going to work through this. I'm going to be asking you for a lot of. Input. A lot of feedback. And we're going to work through this together. And, And. we're going to do this a couple of ways, so just let's just remind ourselves, okay? Whenever we approach a text of Scripture, what's the first thing we have? What, before we jump in trying to interpret it, what do we have to do? Well, we've got to read it and observe it, right? So we're going to do work on a lot of observational kind of exercises, getting you involved in seeing what we see. Then we'll try to figure this out. The person, I think, sent me a, a second email saying there were some specific verses, but I didn't want, I, I, I tried to ignore those because if I go, if this was what I was afraid of, if there were specific verses, and then I went immediately to those specific verses, then I would possibly try to figure out what those mean and almost force the whole section to try to interpret those verses. Does that make sense? So in other words, you've got to start with the, section, the whole section and then try to figure out which verses may be difficult. If you start at the verses, then you start looking at everything to try to answer that. And maybe that's not what the section is designed to answer. Does that make sense? In other words, you read Matthew 22, say 1 through 14, and say verse, and I'm just you know, throwing out just a random example, say verse 9 is the one that's confusing. Well, if you go to 9 and go, like I've got to figure out 9. Then you go back to Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. You'll do everything in your power to make it answer 9. So instead of doing that, figure out Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Then go to 9 and may say, well, this section doesn't have an answer, okay? In other words, you don't try to force an answer. So that's what we're going to work on. And I don't, I don't, well, we'll just see how this all plays out. So everybody ready? Let me, um, just in case. Let me turn the volume down. Let me open this up so that if anyone who's listening live has input or a question, I will try to check the app as, soon as, as much as I can to see. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 22. Let's read verses 1 through 14 at least one time. Everybody ready? Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Pay close attention. Pay close attention. Here we go. And Jesus answered... And spake unto them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage." But they made light of it, and went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king had heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden are not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how comest thou in hither not having wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him, hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right, 14 verses. Now, just from your first time through it, I mean, obviously, hopefully you've read this other times in your life, okay. But from your first time through it tonight, what jumps out at you just immediately? Just your first, just basic observation, basic observations, and there's no wrong answer here. Just anything that jumps out at you. Okay, all right. Okay, no, no, no that's that's good. That's good. All right. So, all right. So I'm I'm just gonna write down number one. The first thing that jumps out at you is which verse? Uh, verse seven or verse? Okay, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed uh, those. Right, okay, so oh, verse 6. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. Is that the one that jumped out at you? All right, so verse 6, because of the killing, right? All right. Does verse uh, 7, does, or does that have the same impact? Or do you feel like, well, that's, that's revenge? Or do you still think, whoa, this is still pretty serious? Right. But still a lot of killing over a wedding. Okay, all right. That's good. That's good. So verse. I'm going to put verse 6 and 7, killing. All right. Anything else jump out at anybody, At anyone? All right. Two, verse 3, the refusal. All right. So if we, if we did this in order, we, we have the first thing that jumps out at someone is the refusal. The second thing that jumps out at someone is the killing. What's another thing that jumps out? Oh, okay, or can we say what, what happens if you have the wrong clothes? <laughs> okay, it's not a good yeah, okay, so all right. Well, hang on, verse uh, number three which verses the wrong clothes show up in? Verse 12 or 11, 11 and 12 wrong clothes because that's some serious punishment for wrong clothes. Everybody agree? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that sounds bad. Okay, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, that sounds bad, all right? All right, anything else jump out at anyone? So we have a refusal that seems like, well, okay, whoa, why, why why do they not want to come to a wedding? Number two, killing, okay, which seems pretty serious. And then three, if you have the wrong clothes, you get taken out and there's weeping and gnashing. You get bound, right? He gets tied up and... Okay, okay. strangers. Okay, cause, yeah, can we say this? Can we say, can we say with verse 9, strange guest? Is that a good way of putting it? All right. Strange guest. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's like, hey, just go find someone on the highway and say, hey, come here. <laughs> come to our wedding. Okay, all right. What else do we have? Anything else? All right. All right, okay, someone else said the wrong close. Uh, what did you say I'm sorry? Which, which is? Oh, okay, good. I I was I, I was figuring I typically that's what everyone runs to. Everyone runs to that one. So I'm glad I did it last because the other things are important. That's verse 14. All right? The the uh, called and chosen Okay, back to the strange guest. All right, all right, yeah. So, bad and good, that's interesting. Right, hey, go find some bad people to bring to the wedding. All right. Okay, yeah, that is interesting. Okay, the wedding's furnished with guests. Okay, now, just from a general observation, based off the things that you guys pointed out, all right? Y'all pointed, I didn't give this to you. You pointed it out, right? Okay? That's the way I, that's the way we try to do the Bible study exercise because I don't like I don't like you just listening to me. All right. Based off those observations alone, what conclusion could you draw from those observations alone? What interpretive conclusion can you draw from these observations by themselves? What do you think? Uh oh we, we entered hermeneutics class and everybody got quiet. There's no serious consequences. Okay. Well first not everybody's heading towns that we can call them. Okay. All right, and what I'm saying is, all of those observations—they got to give you a hermeneutical hint here. They got to give you some kind of hint. I'm trying to like do it. Okay, all right. well, it's a parable. True, the text already tells us it's a parable. It would tell you clearly this is picturing something far more than just a wedding. Because this seems insane that, you know, people are dying, you know, all all the crazy, all, all the observations you guys made, that doesn't sound like your typical wedding. So this makes you stop and go, wait, what am I reading again? Like if I handed this to you as a short story, right, it wasn't in the Bible, just a short story, the word parable doesn't appear, you would stop and be like, what, this is ridiculous. Or you'd be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You'd either say this is ridiculous or what would be another thing that you may say? No, come on. Come on, just think of it. And just reading a normal short story. Just a normal short story. Forget Bible. Forget Bible. Forget Jesus. Forget God. Okay, There's got to be more than that, though. I mean, I know you're going to say it's bizarre. I know you're going to say it's crazy, but I don't think you're just going to stop there and go, well, that was a crazy story. I hope you would keep going. I hope you would say, "Well, wait a minute. Could it possibly be this is like symbolic, allegorical that this is picturing something more than just wedding and killing people and binding people and throwing them out for the wrong clothes, wrong clothes?" Wouldn't you think that this would at least lead you to at least entertain that possibility? Yes. I think it would, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean I think that's I think that's important. Um Okay, good. Right, uh, Diane said, it must be a picture of something else. Uh, Will said, that it's not literal. Okay, good. That, that, <laughs> Diane first said, the, wed- the wedding's important. Okay, well, yeah, the, I would assume the wedding's important. All right, yeah, People are dying over the thing, yes. but Okay, good. People are catching on. Then immediately I would stop and be like, whoa, okay. There's something else. There's something going on here. Now, What's the pro- what happens, what's the hermeneutical challenge the minute you say, hmm, this has got to picture something? Hmm, this, this clearly is not just, the- I don't think this is literal, I think it's, it's, it's an allegory. What is, what's immediately the problem the minute we utter those words? Yeah, now, well now the problem is, okay, where do we find the key to interpret it? Right? Does that now become the problem? Because when the parable... Now look, so what, so what should be the very next thing we look for? Very good! Very good! Immediately, whenever I see one of these stories in the Bible, and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. Because we, we all know the parable of the seed and the sower, right? What makes that one so easy to interpret? Jesus explains it, and you're like, yeah! So there's no problem. Okay, everybody look. At the end, of, uh, in the rest of Matthew twenty-two, and does Jesus explain it? Okay, Pharisees are upset. No, that was okay, great. That's a hermeneutical clue, but we won't we won't talk about that right now. Just does Jesus explain it? Does he say, "Hey guys, this represents this. This represents that." Is everybody positive? Just make sure. All right. Someone just said a few seconds ago in the chat, Jesus doesn't give us interpretation. Does everyone agree? Do we have a 100% agreement? Okay. So we don't think it's there. We don't think it's anywhere. All right. Now, this is important because, look, at least we have an agreement. Yes? <laughs> okay. We have an agreement. Jesus doesn't give an interpretation. Immediately, what does that mean? interpretation is going to be left up to who? Non-Jesus people, right? Okay, and what I mean by that is non, we're not, it's going to be left to infallible people. Now, Sarah mentioned something a second ago. You just mentioned that the Pharisees are upset. All right, what verse is that? Matthew 22:15. Everyone look at that. You may want to just write that down in your notes. Circle that. Matthew 22:15 indicates that the Pharisees what? What would this indicate? In fact, let me read it for everyone who's because some people may be listening and they're, you know, driving in a car or something. Matthew then went, then went, seeming to imply, after hearing these words. Now now there is some problems with this. you'll see this in a minute. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel, hey, how they might entangle him in his talk. Now if we interpret that as they just heard everything he said, then this would imply they heard it, and they understood. And wasn't happy about it. Would everyone agree with that? That that's what that would seem to imply? Now, there are some problems with this. Because some believe that this whole thing is kind of out of order here. And that the Pharisees were, did not hear this parable. Alright. Do what? Do what? Mm-hmm. All right, right, It was already a setting. Yeah. Well, and Matt, well, the problem is nobody knows where Matthew 22 fits in here. This is where it's going to become a problem. All right. Because I'll, I'll explain this in a minute, all right? So, we we'll, we we'll, we we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But if 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 we can determine, and this is important, if we can determine if we have any certainty that the Pharisees heard it and the Pharisees got, got upset about it, then that means the Pharisees understood it. Right? Well, yeah, this is gonna. I'll, I'll explain in a minute where the issue is here in a minute. Okay, but let's just say that that's true. Let's, I'm, I'm just for for argument's sake. Let's just say the Pharisees heard it and understood it and got mad. That would mean that what Jesus did here was at least understandable to the people who were present, and that whatever Jesus was doing made the Pharisees mad. So you would think it's more than just a generic wedding where people get killed. Clearly, it would be something against who? Like, who, 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 who could it? Well, Israel, Pharisees, Sadducees. It had to be something with regards to Israel. Now, that would massively impact how we understand this, okay? Possibly. All right. Now let's, let's now, let's work through it a little bit more and see what we can find. Everybody ready? Go to Matthew 22, 1. Now, I'm going to do a lot of speculating here, but on this part, I'm going, to pull, I'm going to bring in commentaries just to at least get us started. All right, everybody ready? Matthew 22, 1. What are the first words of the parable? Then Jesus answered, stop. Now, first of all, do we have an agreement in translations? Oh, there's a big difference. We have Jesus answered and Jesus spoke. What would be the difference here? Answered, what would be the immediate question we would have? Answered whom? And if we know the question, that may help us interpret the parable. So who is he answering? Is it a question what is going on? Let's look at, according to a couple of, of, of commentaries. We'll just spend a little time working on this. Everybody ready? Number one. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again in parables. That is, he answered or made a reply to the Pharisees who had been enraged at him for what he had already spoken to them. Matthew 21 45 through 46. Does everyone see Matthew 21, 45 through 46? Stephen just made a reference to it a minute ago. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So you have upset Pharisees. Mad. They're upset. So. When Jesus answers, is it that he's answering a specific question or that he's answering their anger and their frustration? I mean, they want to do what to him? They want to kill him. So we see answering their hatred and their rejection with the parable that follows? Okay, all right. Okay, so, okay. But what, in other words, arrest or killing... We would agree it's a rejection. Agreed? Right. All right. So is it, So in other words, when it says answer, what, when you think answer, what, what, sometimes what's the first thing that comes to your mind? That he's answering a specific question. Now, if he was answering a specific question and we could find that question, that would give us interpretive clues on in how to handle Matthew 20, 22, verses 1 through 14. Agreed? But it doesn't seem that he's answering a question. Seems like he's, in a sense, answering what? Rejection. Yeah, I mean that's what. Well, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, yeah, I mean the previous passage makes it clear, right? Well, some believe that it, that it's similar to another one, but they believe there's too many differences for it to be the same parable. Now, I don't. If the other one, if it's recounted somewhere else, we would have to look. But that's well, we'll, we'll, we'll we will examine that here in a minute. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, it's definitely a good thing to look at. That's definitely, for those listening online, someone just asked, is the exact same parable in another gospel, then we could go see if it offers a different context or more information. Okay, we'll, we'll, we will try to do that. So let's, let's say this. Everybody ready? Matthew 22, 1 through 14 is a parable that Jesus gives to answer the anger and rejection of the Pharisees. Not necessarily a specific question. At least in the context of Matthew 22. All right? Because does anybody see a, a, a question? All right, all right. So it doesn't seem that he's answering a question. He's answering their rejection and their anger. Right? But stay with me. But there, here comes some, some possible problems. Everybody listening? All right. That is, he answered or made reply to the Pharisees who had been enraged at him for what he had already spoken to them in Matthew 21. He made a still further statement to show how the gospel would be received and treated by them. The real answer here, as it it frequently the case in the New Testament, refers to what was passing in the mind or to the conduct of those who were addressed, not to what they said. In other words, what Jesus is doing here, he is answering what they're feeling, thinking, not something they specifically said, and it's specifically dealing with their attitudes. So he's really going after the attitudes of the Pharisees. And again, go back to chapter 21. What's their attitude at the end of chapter 21? Everybody can read it. They sought to lay hands on him. What what, what what's so funny? They to get a hold of him. Yeah, they, did, they did. That's good Texas. They wanted, that's Texas. They want to get good, a good how does he say it? I can't even say it right. They to get a hold of him. Of him. They want to get a hold of him, right? Okay. They they lay hands on him and they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So they want to grab him, but they can't. So they're frustrated and they're upset. So Jesus is like, okay, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a parable. Now This seems to imply that he's speaking directly to them. All right. Let me just call this into question, possibly. All right. Everybody ready? Here we go. Um, Jesus answered and spoke unto them. After they heard our Lord's words, at the end of the last chapter, the Pharisees, according to St. Mark, left him and went their way. So that this parable was spoken in the audience of the disciples and the attendant multitudes alone, without the former disturbing element. And Mark, it seems to imply that after those words, they all left. So that means the answer is to that attitude, not necessarily directed at them, if we understand it that way. We'll look up the passage in Mark in a minute. Does that make sense? Yes? All right, that, that, this, this, this just gives us the setting. And sometimes with parables, that can be key to everything. All right? This fact, now listen to what they say. Everybody ready? This fact, now they said it as a fact, as if clearly the, the Pharisees left, may account for its exhibiting certain merciful and gracious features, setting forth the privilege rather than the duty of obeying the gospel call. I don't know how merciful, we, we, can, we can look there. The term answered often does not signify a reply Given to some distinct question, but it is equivalent to took oca- occasion to observe. Here, the occasion was the insidious schemes of his enemies. So when we hear answer, we think of a specific question. I'm trying to remove that idea. I don't think that's what he's doing here. He's, he's observing. He's responding. To this attitude of rejection and hatred. That would mean he doesn't necessarily need those people present. He just needs to give a parable that would speak of hatred and rejection. Does that make sense? So, this is important. If the Pharisees left, his observation about hatred and rejection would still be relevant. Yes? Why would it still be relevant even if the Pharisees left? Why would the parable still be relevant if, even if he's not speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? It, let's say they did leave. Why would it still be relevant to those who were remaining? The disciples are going to experience the rejection and hatred, yes? The multitude is going to see the rejection and the hatred, yes? I mean, Jesus is going to go to the... When he gets brought before Pilate, what are they going to say? Give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. They're going to witness this hatred and rejection. And some of them are going to be involved in doing it. So I just want you to see that even whether we keep the Pharisees there or whether they leave, the parable still makes sense. All right? I'm just trying to establish this fact. He is responding to an attitude, not a question. Does that make sense? Looking at, we've already read the parable. Do you think it addresses the attitude of rejection and hatred? Everyone agree? Okay. Would everyone agree that that's true? All right. So far, so good. All right. Now, Hang on. I've got to check and make sure no one's asking any more questions. All right. Okay. Now, let's continue. Wait, if I can get back to my notes. I'm opening up 9,000 different windows here. Okay. All right. Close all of that. All right. Here we go. Now, next, another commentary. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again, Not to the multitude only, but to the chief priests, elders, scribes, and Pharisees. So they say he's speaking to everyone. The previous commentary said, no, he left. This commentary says, no, he's speaking to all of them. Right? Sometimes this can become maddening and frustrating because you're like, can we, we can't even agree on the setting. So you, did you see what I did just previously in my previous comments? What did I try to demonstrate to you? Even if we can't agree on the setting. Whether the Pharisees are there or not there, the parable is addressing the attitude of hatred and rejection which would be relevant to whichever audience heard it. All right. Why I'm spending time on that is because no one seems to be able to agree on the setting. If I can demonstrate if I can demonstrate that the setting, whether we can agree on it or don't agree on it, it doesn't change the interpretation of the parable. If the setting was absolutely key to the interpretation of the parable, then we would have to go, we've got to figure this out. Or we may have to come to the conclusion, the setting is essential. We can't discover the setting, therefore, we can't interpret it. You've got to be willing to admit that sometimes. Okay, I know you're not supposed to ever admit that, but admit that. This this commentary, all right, Mark seems to insinuate that upon the delivery of the last parable of the vineyard, they left him and went their way. Yet, since he does not relate the following parable, they may not leave him until they heard that, which is spoken with much the same design as the former. and might increase their resentment even more. If the chief priests and elders did go away, the Pharisees remained behind, as it is clear from Matthew 22, 15. Everyone look at Matthew twenty two fifteen. 15. What happens there? Okay, who's, who's going to take counsel there? The Pharisees. So their argument is that what could have happened, the chief priests and elders left, The Pharisees stayed behind. Now look at Matthew or Mark chapter twelve. Go to Mark chapter twelve. Mark chapter twelve. I know we've spent now yeah, we're not getting very far, but that's okay. Uh, Mark twelve twelve, and they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them and they left him and went their way. Well, who is the them? They're arguing that the them there could be the chief priests and elders, but the Pharisees stuck around and that's how they're trying to rectify it or they're trying to, to resolve it. It doesn't matter. I, that's what I'm going to argue. It doesn't matter. Because I try to make it matter, it all begins to fall apart, right? Did you have, do you have something? Oh, okay. All right. Does anybody, does anybody see something there that that we need to address quickly? All right. Some people would try to argue that like, so... Matthew, there, there, some would argue Matthew's not necessarily worried about the chronological order. He's grouping different parables that have similar themes. Where, so therefore it can be a little out, out of whack. So you could insert it there in Mark and then maybe it would all fit together. Exactly. Where? Exactly. So you could try to put it together that way. So exactly. exactly. so to together that way. So insert, right. But my argument was, is this. Whoever is present, it's relevant. Whoever is present, it's relevant. Does everybody understand that? All right, now, if it's relevant, let me state again. Who is doing the hating and the rejecting historically to God's prophets, God's word, and to the Messiah himself? Yes, Israel. Who, who, wanted, who wouldn't listen to the prophets? Israel. Who tried to kill the prophets? Israel. Who's rejecting Jesus? Israel. Who's going to call for Jesus to be killed? Israel. When I say Israel, I'm saying the large majority, right? I mean, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of people going, no, 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 no. Give us Jesus. They were like, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, right? Agreed? And definitely the leadership. Exactly. All right, so clearly, that, that, that did that just give you a clue in how to possibly interpret this? Did it? I think so. Now, let's start working through it quickly. All right, well, oh, man, we got to go quickly. All right, here we go, verse 2. The kingdom of heaven. All right, so now we have the kingdom of heaven. This concept of the kingdom of heaven, and I think we, could, we can associate that with a lot of things, right? Salvation, right, being right with God. All right, the kingdom of heaven is like unto what? A certain king, which made a marriage for his son. All right. So we have a. Let's not even try to fill in the gap in here. With we'll just, just make sure we understand. Clearly, this is to be. This has something to do with the kingdom of heaven. It's a picture of the kingdom of heaven. Agreed. Now, if we liken it to the kingdom of heaven, who's the king? God, God the Father, agreed? Right? You're going to put God the Father question mark if you need to in your notes. Who would the Son be? Jesus, right? Because God the Father, God the Son, right? Okay, God the Father, God the Son. And he's going to prepare him a what? A wedding. Now, we we could go look at some other scriptures, but we just want a basic idea. We've got the Father, and we have a Son Who's gonna wants to prepare a wedding for his son? Everybody agreed. So far, so good. All right? What happens? Send forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. The servants are to go out, and who are they to call to the wedding? Those who had been invited. Those who who had been bidden. Okay. Now. We we can try to identify these people, but at least we have a basic idea. Father, son, wedding, servants go out to invite the people who are bidden, and they what? They refuse. Everybody see it? They would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all the things are ready to come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. So, okay, so let's think about this. We have a wedding being prepared. We have the servants sent out to invite the people who had been bidden, and they don't come. More servants are sent to try to get them to come, and what's, what's, what's the reaction? So uh, uh, let's think of it this way. The first rejection is kind of what? Just kind of like, just kind of like, just to know. Just a simple no, right? What's the second rejection? We got better things to do. So we have a simple no, and we've got better things to do. Other things are more important. What are some of the things they mentioned? Yeah, merchandise and farm, right? So basically, livelihood, employment, job, those kinds of things. Everybody got that? Yes? And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. What's the third rejection? Violence. It goes from a no to we got better things to do to we'll kill you. (laughs) Yeah, to oh no. It goes goes from a a serious They kill them. Now, I want you to stop right here. Because here's what we tend to do. What's one of the dangers with parables? Man, we start trying to go, okay, here's the father, that's the son, okay, the wedding. And, and immediately we say the wedding, oh, who's, who's the bride? Oh, that's got to be the bride. That's the church, right? As we start going crazy, right? We start cross-referencing the thing to death. Stop. What is Jesus responding to? Rejection and hatred. And he tells the parable of a father setting up a marriage for a son and they send out people to invite, and people are just so... Listen, this would be disrespectful in this culture, right? Yeah. wedding! No. Come on, a wedding! Don't you see we got better things to do than your stupid wedding? But no, I'm telling you they a wedding. Okay, you're dead. Now, this would be shocking in this culture, right? I know in our culture, like... Movies where a bunch of people are killed, we're like, okay, no big deal, right? But for this culture, this would be a shocking story, right? They'd be like, whoa, what's going on? The story deals with rejection and hatred. That's the point. What we want to do is start breaking it all down. We want to start, we want, man, we want to go crazy. And I I always try to tell people to avoid that. Why do I want you to avoid that? Because the parable typically has just trying to make a a very important point, yes? And the important point is how ugly and horrible this attitude of rejection and hatred is. I mean, you've got to be pretty, you've got to be pretty messed up to kill people because they simply invited you to a wedding you didn't want to go to. I mean, you That goes a little far, right? Someone sends a wedding invitation and the next thing you know, you're at their door. You're never going to send me another wedding wedding invitation again and you kill someone. If you saw that on the news, you'd be like, that's evil. That's evil. What Jesus wants you to see is how evil their hatred and rejection is. I mean, being invited to a wedding shouldn't make you that mad, should it? Right? Agreed? Okay, now, what happens next? When the king heard thereof, he was wroth and sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now, the king is upset. Now, let's leave this because everybody wants to run to the church. Everybody wants to run and make this about the church, right? Because the church is called the Bride of Christ, right? So everybody that's where immediately everybody wants to run to. But at this point in redemptive history, is it known that the church is the bride of Christ? No, that concept doesn't even exist, right? Israel's who's invited. I mean, there's no other way to get around this. He's talking to the... He's speaking of the rejection of the religious leaders of Israel. So the king and the son think of that as God the Father inviting Israel to be a part of this with his son, who is the Messiah, and they reject it. They don't want anything to do with it. And so now it's told that the, fa- the father is so mad, he's going, to bring, he's going to burn their city. Now, this really starts having some pretty serious implications, right? Historically, what could this refer to? Well, it's not 70 A.D. yet. So historical from the time he's telling this story. What would it refer to? Babylonian captivity, right? When they came in, destroyed the temple, took them off to Babylonian captivity. Yes. So it could be a reference to the past. If it's a reference to the future, what is it referring to? 70 A.D. But their city's going to be burned. Yes? Okay? Do I? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, clearly, they would, hopefully this would register the past D- destruction, hopefully. They don't know 70 A.D. is coming yet. They don't have any uh, comprehension of that, right? They don't, they don't know that. I mean, we're, we're, not even to, we're not even to 33 A.D. at the point of telling of this story. We're probably 31, 32. I would have to try to figure it out. Uh, I mean, we're, we're still a ways away from 70 A.D., right? Everybody got it? Okay, now, what happens next? Then then saith to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together, all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Now let's stop right here. Now let's just put it in its basic context. Let's just make it simple, right? Let's forget the church right now, right? Israel's invited. Israel doesn't come. Israel tries to kill people who invite them. Israel faces serious judgment as a result of their rejection, yes? Babylonian captivity, 70 AD. So who are these other people that are invited? Has to be the Gentiles. Who would be considered not all good, right? Would we agree? Dogs. Right? Right? No good Gentiles. Yeah, don't even go in the house and eat with them. They're they're not worthy of anything. Now, would this make the Pharisees mad? Yeah, the Pharisees, if they understand, they seem to have some understanding of what's going on here, right? So in a roundabout way, what is Jesus saying? The Pharisees, Israel may reject me. I'll bring in the Gentiles. That would create a little bit of controversy, yes? Does that play out in history as a controversial move? Yes. Yes. When the Gentiles start coming in, what is the reaction of the Jews? Who are these people? Like, why? Can, Can I even eat with them? Do I refer to them as a brother or sister? So this is carrying the rejection idea. Everybody wants to run to the church, the church, the church. And I got commentaries that will immediately go there. Just calm down. Remember the parable is just trying to give us a basic concept here. Right? So far, so good. All right? So when we end verse 10, what do we have? Simply put, what do we have at this point? Invitation, rejection, punishment, New guest. Right? And the wedding is furnished with guests. Now, if we stop right there, we're good to go. Now it gets weird, doesn't it? Okay. So far, so good. This, This part's not hard. I just think when we try to throw the church into here, it gets a little weird. I understand we want to because the church is the bride, but this is really about Israel and then bringing in the Gentiles, yes? Okay, I mean, it has to be. I, there, there's nothing else I can really make, make nothing else really makes any historical sense. What do we do with the next part? The next part's just like, what in the world is going on? All right, so here, here we go. And when the king came to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Now, what's, what's very significant about 11? Right? Everything before kind of speaks of groups of people, right? Servants, plural, right? To them. It seems like a, a lot of plurality. Here it all centers around an individual. It kind of goes from group to individual. Do, do, am I reading that wrong or would everyone agree that that seems to be true of the narrative? So we have one person. So now we're not speaking about a group. So in other words, now this wouldn't seem to be referring to Israel, Pharisees, Sadducees, or Gentiles. This is now referring to a person, which seems to be a change in narrative. Agreed? Alright, so we have one individual. Where is he at? He's at the wedding. Alright, so that's, that, that means what? What? He hadn't rejected the invitation. He hadn't rejected the invitation, right? I mean, he's there, right? Remember, up to this point, it's all about rejecting rejecting or accepting the invitation. He's there. That's interesting. So on one hand, you want to do what for this guy? Yay! You're better than those other people who are killing people for getting an invitation. He's not killing anybody. seems like a good guy. Would you agree? Alright, right, so he's there. Right, now what happens? He's there. The king comes in. And he saith unto him, Friend. He calls him friend. How comest how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And the guy's uh <laughs> maybe, maybe he's pulling out his invitation. He's like, okay, wait, okay, let's see. What, what page? Like, maybe, I mean, most invitations you don't think would be multiple pages, but he's like, okay, wait, where's there? Oh, fine print. You must be wearing the following. Like, like he doesn't know what to say. This, the story did, this is where the story just like, what just happened here, right? So you're like, okay, that would be embarrassing, right? It's embarrassing to show up. And they're like, uh, dress code. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. But typically they just say, dress code, you don't have it, and you just do what? Okay, I'll just leave and go change, right? Does he get an opportunity to just leave and go change? Does it appear to, what happens? Then this, So the guy's just standing there, does it say that the guy's like, how dare you give me a dress code? He doesn't, he's like, I'm going to burn this place down, right? He doesn't seem to, he, just, he doesn't say a word. And then immediately the next verse, what happens? The king said to his servants, now the servants here are not now going out to give invitations. <laughs> the servants are done giving invitations. The servants now are told to do what to this individual? Bind him, hand and foot. Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that language of outer darkness is used to describe where? Hell. This just got really weird. This man, I mean, look from a spiritual standpoint, this man shows up to a wedding and the next thing he finds himself in hell. Hey, I got an invitation. I think I'll go to the wedding. And then he ends up in hell. That's crazy. If you look at it from an earthly, literal perspective then you're saying, this man went to a wedding, didn't have the right clothes and ended up in prison. Ended up in some horrible, horrible place of punishment. What in the world is going on? Next verse. I like, that's the NIV. Many are invited, few are chosen. Whoa. That's hard to, to wrap your mind around, huh? The, many are called, few are chosen. He's indicating that this man had been invited, this man had been called. This man wasn't chosen. So in order to not only make it to the wedding and stay at the wedding, not only do you have to have an invitation, right? Not only do you have to respond to the invitation, you have to be clothed in the right clothing, and you have to clearly be chosen Not simply invited, implying that those who are chosen would be given the right clothing and those who are not chosen will not have the right clothing. Now what makes this so complicated to interpret? What makes it so complicated to interpret is now we have to do what to try to interpret it? What do we have to try to do at this point? I know now we've got like one minute. Okay. Well, actually, we started about 10, 12 after, so I, we'll give my, I'll give myself at least another five or six minutes if I can wrap it up that quick. What, 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 what do you have to do at this point to try to figure this out? The first part, what did you need to figure out? What did you need for the first part to figure out of the parable? Just this setting, right? This is about rejection and hatred. He addresses the rejection and hatred, and what does he demonstrate about the rejection and hatred? It's ugly and it's horrible. Yes? And we can get a pretty good idea. Israel's the rejecting and the people invited in would be the Gentiles. That's the only way, there's no other way to interpret that. But this part, can you interpret this part with just the setting? No, it doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? Agreed? In other words, you could argue... Hey, it doesn't matter who's invited. The original people or the secondary people, if you arrive, you've got to be more than invited. You've got to be clothed and you have to be chosen. You could draw that from the, from the context, yes. No matter who's invited, you've got to be more than invited. You have to be chosen. Correct? All right. But what else would we need to try to interpret this? Come on, you've you got to come up to some kind of idea. What else is needed here? Will makes a good point. It's odd that only one was tossed out if few were chosen. That is true. That is an odd thing about the story. I agree. But what do you need to figure this out? I mean, come on. If I, if I drop dead right now, how are you going to figure it out? Don't say, well, I'll go find another pastor to explain it to me. You don't need a pastor to explain it to you. You've got to figure it out. We're Protestants. We're not Catholics. Think in proper... Clearly, at this point, the words of Jesus alone are not sufficient. Now, I know if someone takes that out of context, I'm going to, you know, there's going to be a news story written about me. Okay, What I'm trying to say is there's no explanation here. There's none. There's zero. So in your mind, what does the wedding garment represent? Okay, everybody's, now Now you're sounding like good Protestants, okay? Every, now everybody just went immediately to what? Imputed righteousness. Okay, give me a verse that would prove that. Give me, give me something as fast as you can. Give me something that the wedding garment represents righteousness. It's open book. You can do every cross-reference you can. Anything you can find. Something about being clothed in righteousness. Anything. Use every tool. Use Siri, Alexa. Call Diane. Call Twyla. Those listening on the internet, give me what you've got. Anybody. Anybody. Anybody who can give me something for, what, what verse would you run to? Because everyone's going to immediately assume that the clothing represents the righteousness of Christ. And if you don't have the right clothing, you don't get in. What, where would you go with this? I think there, is there something in the book of Revelation? Is there something in the book of Revelation in regards to this? Is there something in Isaiah about this? Okay, what verse is that? Isaiah 61.10 says that he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Okay, maybe. Wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. Robe of righteousness. Is that Isaiah 61.10 still? Uh, okay. So Isaiah 61.10 talks about being clothed in uh, what's the exact words? For uh, he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Garments of salvation. He has me with the robe, of robe of righteousness. Okay, possibly. Right. Do we have anything? Oh, it even references a wedding. Oh, so a, the, a wedding language is used in Isaiah 61. Now, that's impo- why is that important? Why is that important? Isaiah is written prior to Matthew, and he's talking to Jews who would have known Isaiah, right? Okay, so that's why that's important. So Isaiah 61, that's ten. All right, 61.10. Just write that down as a possible cross-reference. All right, what else? What else? Anything else? Anything else? Any other language that you would point to going, okay, I think, I think that would prove my point. Oh, wait, 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 we've got... Oh, okay, Twyla said Isaiah 61. Okay. Oh, we got Galatians 3.27. You sure? Nothing in Revelation? Nothing? Nobody can find anything in Revelation? About wedding or garment or... Okay, what do we have in Galatians? What, what, I'm interesting, I'm not, I haven't thought of Galatians. Okay, that's being clothed with Christ, okay. Maybe, all right. Do we have anything else? To, especially any language that speaks of being clothed in some kind of robe of righteousness or a wedding garment. Oh, Diane says Revelation 3.5. What what do we think? What do we think? 3.5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and not before his angels. Okay, you at least have some clothing. Okay, Revelation What? Revelation sixteen fifteen. What do we have here? Behold, I, I I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they shall see his shame. Um, someone said, uh, Revelation nineteen, which has verse. Uh, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the wife have made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. Clean and white for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, some people would say, "Well, wait a minute. That would be not imputed righteousness, but practical righteousness, which could literally lead to a whole different interpretation of the parable." Okay, right. any any anything else? Okay. Now, we're about to run out of time, okay? I want everyone just to pause for a second. What is this starting to, what's starting to come to light here? What's starting to come to light? Now, what's coming to light is that we're not, nobody has a clue. Every commentary is going to act like they have a clue, but I mean, are you finding something that's like, here's the key, that gives it away? We, we ended up in Revelation 19, which is what I wanted someone to go to, and immediately we ended up with the righteousness of the saints. That's practical righteousness. That, that's, you're going to end up back to Roman Catholicism and uh, salvation by works. Okay. Uh, uh, Diane said the righteousness of the saints can still be the imputed righteousness. It could be. The only problem is uh, that phrase is sometimes translated the righteous acts of the saints, which then you would have to imply that the righteous acts of the saints are the imputed obedience of Christ. You, you could work it, but man, you're, you're going to have to do a lot of work to try to get there. Right? I'll just show you really quick just how, I'll just grab one commentary here. That starts in verse uh, Okay, here we go. I'm just going to read this quickly and we'll, we'll stop. Everybody ready? The fourth and last scene in the parable focuses on an intruder into the wedding feast who did not belong because he was not dressed in the wedding clothes. This man obviously had been included in the general invitation because the king made no restrictions as to who was invited, having instructed his slaves to call both in an evil and good uh, uh, whether they might be found. He was not... Uh, he was not a party crasher who came without an invitation, but he had come improperly dressed and he obviously stood out in the great wedding hall in stark contrast to the other dinner guest. At first reading, one wonders how any of those who accepted the king's invitation could have been expected to come properly attired. They had been rounded up from every part of the land and many had been taken off the streets. Even if if they had time to dress properly, they had no clothes benefiting such an occasion as the wedding of the king's son. But the fact that all the dinner guests except the one man were dressed in wedding clothes indicates that the king had made provision for such clothes. I think we can agree with that, right? Many are called. Few are chosen, clearly the chosen are given the proper arraignment, all right? It would have been a moral mockery, especially for such an obvious, kind, and gracious ruler to invite even the most wicked people in the land to come to the feast and then exclude one poor fellow because he had no proper clothes to wear. That man was fully accountable for being improperly dressed, but the gracious king was nevertheless gave him an opportunity to justify himself, asking Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding clothes? Had the man had a good reason, he would certainly have mentioned it immediately, but he was speechless, unable to offer the king even the feeblest excuse. It therefore, it is therefore obvious that he could have come in wedding clothes had he been willing, or had he been chosen, I think is a better way to describe it, right? I mean, the text doesn't use the word willing, does it? All right, so I, I don't like that. Language, okay? We want to use the biblical language. Until that point, the man had been utterly presumptuous, thinking he could come to the king's feast on his own terms and any clothes he wanted. He was proud and self-willed. Okay? I mean, you're making some assumptions. Okay, but maybe. Thoughtless of others and, worst of all, insulting to the king. Arrogantly defying royal protocol. He was determined to be himself. The text doesn't really say much about his behavior. It just The emphasis at the end is what? Invited and chosen. That's the emphasis, right? Okay. But his arrogance was short-lived when the king saw in advance the man could not excuse himself. The king said to his servants, bind him. Outer darkness Throw him out. All right? Um, Now, here's what they say. They jump down here and this is what they say. The proper wedding garment of a true believer is God-imputed righteousness without which no one can enter or live in the kingdom. Unless a person's righteousness exceeds the hypocritical self-righteousness that typifies the scribes and Pharisees, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus makes that clear in Matthew chapter 5. Yeah, your righteousness has to exceed that. The only problem is you, you can't, so you're going to have to be given the righteousness. The only acceptable wedding garment is the genuine sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, or the genuine holiness without anyone will see the Lord. That's Hebrews 12, 14. Many of the Jewish hearers that day would have recalled the beautiful passage from Isaiah. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my king, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61, 10. Sincere Jews knew that, contrary to the man-made legalistic traditions of their rabbis. God not only requires inner righteousness, but he offers it as a gift. All right. Then they go on and offer some more verses. Now, why do I like the Isaiah passage? Because it was written prior to what? Uh, someone just said, also wonder if he, if he would have been better off not to accept the invitation. Yeah, <laughs> well, true. Uh, yeah, hey, hey, it would have been better in this particular case. All right, so what can we, what can, what can we uh, do here? A couple of things we can do. All right, everybody ready? The first part, everybody understands, yes? Rejection is bad. God clearly shows how evil the rejection is, clearly condemns it, and clearly shows judgment in regards to it. Yes? It also indicates him in bringing in the Gentiles. Yes? But what is kind of a warning here? The difference between an invitation and being chosen. Now, the only way to understand that is you have to then look at the Bible about the discussion of election. Now, a lot of people don't want to go to this parable and talk about election But I don't know how else you understand the parable. Now, we do know this election makes us what? We're chosen, we are elected, and those he chooses, those he elects, he also does what? Remember Romans 8? Those he foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified. In other words, if God chooses you, then you are clothed properly for the wedding. If you are invited without being chosen, you will not be clothed properly for the wedding. Now, everybody will do everything they can to come up with a hundred different ways around it. Because the problem is it's a parable and everyone's going to do whatever they want with it. But you're left with, what's the difference in the, in, in the situation? Jesus says it's at the end. Called and chosen. The difference is if you're chosen, you're okay. If you're only invited, you're not. Well, what, what's the only thing I can relate to this in the entire Bible? Election. There's nothing else I can, there's nothing else I can do with it. Like you, you can say, no, 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 it was the man's choice. It's the man's choice. The man made a choice. He accepted the invitation and he still ended up in hell. The only way to understand it is. He wasn't chosen. You say, "Well, that's not fair." No, what's not fair is that anybody was invited, or that anybody was chosen. I'll even go. That's not even fair to be invited, much less chosen. That's the only way to understand it. The problem is, is that the text itself requires that we have to do a lot of what? We got to go grab other things and try to bring it back, and everyone's going to go and grab. Different things, which I hate because I don't, because then it comes down to a lot of speculation. I think the only way to come close to interpreting the whole wedding garment thing is the last statement, the invite versus the chosen. Without that, everything else becomes wild speculation. Everybody wants to try to figure out the garments. I'm just going to say the garments, I think, is obvious. They were provided because everyone else has them, right? Right? And it has something to do with the fact this man doesn't have him because he wasn't chosen. uh, Wouldn't you not agree that's what Jesus makes as the distinction? He's making the distinction this man was invited but this man wasn't chosen. Clearly all the others were chosen and obviously they had the right clothing which would insinuate the clothing came because they were chosen. That's the best I can come up with and I'll have to stop. All right? I wish, it was, I wish it wasn't that complicated. But it, I, just, I just want you to feel when you start getting there and you're like, man, what do we do with this? And you start looking for other verses. Either you start looking for verses that hadn't even been written at the time. Now, you see the problem with doing that? Does everybody understand hermeneutically the problem with doing that? I don't have those verses. So how in the world? I mean, we can go look everywhere else. Now we could go back to Isaiah and at least now it makes a little, Isaiah 61 is a great one to turn to because at least it makes some sense. Right? Okay. So I I just, we can run everywhere else, but they would have had all the other things. So we, we always forget that. All right. Any questions? All right. Now we'll have to see what kind of questions people have later, but we'll stop right there. If you have any questions afterwards, let me know. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. A very powerful parable that clearly warns us of the evil of rejection and hatred of your invitation, but also a somber warning that we're only there if we've been chosen. We don't choose ourselves; You choose us. We pray you would have mercy and grace. And that we would understand this parable and take it to heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,